0: But right now, we're going to read from the Bible. It should come up behind you as well. And we're going to read from Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through to chapter 5, verse 11. So, Acts 4, starting at verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph When the young men came in, they found her They found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, it's great having you with us this morning. Whether you're a member here at City Light and a part of a small group or whether you're just visiting or whether you're kind of exploring the faith, Um, It's great to be having God's Word with you. Um, But just before we get there, we're told in God's Word that uh, God gives us many gifts through the gospel and through His Spirit, but also often He gives us gifts in people and in those who serve the church. And if you're wondering why the screen is looking a little bit dim this morning, it's because we came here and the data projector wasn't working. And so Tim and Josh, and I think it's Sam's projector that we're using, actually pivoted and got it all done. So while you guys just walked in and everything was normal in church, They've done about three times worth the effort of setup up just for one single morning. So can we just thank them for putting in and serving us in that way this morning? Um, and if you can, just you know, just as a gentle reminder that as people serve us week in and week out on projection or morning tea or whatever it is, that we just be a church who are thankful and thanking people personally and deliberately for the way that they're serving us and, and loving Christ, uh, serving Christ in that way. Also, just to double down on, um, on what Rob was sharing about Alpha, if you haven't been to an Alpha before, if you haven't brought someone along, come to the preview night. If you're thinking, look, I'd love to do that, this, the step of actually coming to the preview night is the thing most likely, one, to spark off people who you think like, ah, yeah, actually, they would, they would really enjoy kind of hearing the gospel in this context, but also just to move you in the next step in actually inviting someone along. So if you haven't done that yet, 15th RSVP on the Facebook group, it's going to be a great night. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive into this tricky, kind of confronting passage that Rob just read out for us. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that through your word you reveal who you are, and that through your word you both affirm and confront us, that as we see what you are like, we see in you hope and joy and the peace of the gospel. But in this passage, we also see that you are a God who is holy and who judges. And so, Father, we pray that we would listen with humble hearts, that we who know you would be those who tremble at your word, knowing that you are good and your judgments are right and just. And so, Father, be transforming us as we open your word this morning. Amen. We, we read a bunch of stories with our kids, and we're now finally onto the Lord of the Rings. Um, And if you haven't heard of it, there's not much I can do for you, but it's out there and a few people have read it. But one theme that carries through all of the books is this this single kind of theme that humans can't be trusted with wealth and treasure. And that wealth and treasure and its kind of cousin, which is power, have a deforming effect on the soul that in some of the characters manifests itself in their outward appearance. But the, the constant theme is that people can't be trusted. And of all the creatures who, are in, who inhabit this world that J.R. Tolkien created, the ones who are least able to handle wealth are humans. And the reason that resonates with us is that we get it. We see it in our world. Nobody reads Lord of the Rings and is like, "Ah, oh, you know, that's the least plausible part, right? You see that but you think, like, that, is, that is an insight into humanity that resounds throughout the ages. That, that wealth... Has a, has a deforming effect on the soul. That there are very few people who can handle extraordinary wealth and everything that comes with it and remain humble and remain people of integrity. But one of the strange things about it is we read those stories and we think, yeah, people are really bad with wealth. People are really greedy. But other people are really greedy. Other people struggle with this. And if you don't believe me that that's the case, it's easily provable. Just think about this question. How would you feel today if someone told you you'd won the lottery? A million dollars plus is now yours. I imagine you, like me, would feel a singular emotion that you would just—you rejoice. That's the only emotion that you'd be feeling. And not only that, there might even be, if you have debts or things like that, there might even be a sudden relief. Do you like, actually, I can feel the sense that all of my future problems have just evaporated in front of me. And that tells us that in our hearts that we still don't really get it. We still don't really get how endangering wealth can be or treasure can be or money can be to our soul. Because the way we should receive that news should be a little bit similar to receiving the news that you will never have to pay a power bill again because a nuclear power plant is going in in your area. It would be a mixture of like, wow, that's great. And wow, will I be alive to enjoy the benefits of that? there'd be a sense, a mixture, right? A healthy mixture of kind of excitement and fear together. That's how we should biblically be handling wealth. Because the theme that weaves throughout the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which is the second volume of the Gospel of Luke, is that wealth, more than anything, will show you what's in your heart. If you track through the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, no one tracks the theme of money more than him. And it's very closely tied to how you respond to salvation. When Zacchaeus, the tax collector, gets saved, he responds by trusting in Jesus. But the immediate impact is on finances. What does he do? He says, I'm going to pay back everyone who I've ripped off, however many fold more. And you're going to see through the book of Acts that money and relation to the gospel are closely connected. And they're connected in this passage here too. Because up until this point in the book of Acts, the only threats to the church have been external. There have been threats from outside, from religious leaders, the ones who killed Jesus, now threaten his church and say, stop speaking about Jesus or you'll get what's coming to you. And all that does is unite the church. But now in this passage, we're going to see for the first time, there's a threat that springs up from within the church. It's not just trouble coming from outside. Now there's something happening from within. And we're going to see how God deals with it in the early church. But just before we get to the first section of this passage, a little bit of context if you haven't been traveling with us each week as to what's happened in the story, a little bit of a recap. Just before the story we're about to read, Peter and John, who are disciples of Jesus, who are apostles of Jesus, were preaching the word. Lots of people were coming to trust Jesus. The religious authorities grabbed them, put them in jail and put them on trial and said, right, stop speaking about Jesus You have to stop, otherwise bad things are going to happen to you, but they don't do anything yet, and they release them. Peter and John go and tell the church. The church prays. Instead of praying, God, take away this persecution, they pray, God, just make us bold. And then we see this, what happens to the church as a result. In Acts 4.32, it says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called also by the, by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Instead of killing the church, these threats of violence toward the church actually unite it. We see here that the the church were of one heart and of one mind, which is ancient language to say they were just united, they were together. They all desired the same thing. They were growing in their love for Christ together, and they were growing in their desire to share this gospel of Jesus as widely as they could. The mission goes forward. And that isn't uncommon. Often it's the case when you have external threats, people band together. If you are a teacher and you've ever worked in a school where you may be tempted to bring like a flak jacket to your classrooms or something like that, I'm told that the teachers are really united. I mean, they have to be because it may come down to to genuine fights, right? But the, the staff tend to be really united in a rough school because it's kind of us versus them a little bit. But here, we see that this this isn't an us versus them kind of unity. The church aren't gathering together to fight back. The impact that it has is they just trust God more. They pray to God for boldness and he provides it. The apostles keep preaching the gospel with confidence and people keep becoming saved and the trust in Jesus grows deeper. They're not developing this us versus them mentality. Not only that, they're still reaching out to the people who are outside this community. They're loving them, they're serving them, they're sharing the gospel with them. And we're told here that their unity isn't just a thoughts and prayers be with you kind of unity. It's having a real impact on how they understand their stuff, their possessions, their money. They have one heart and it's flowing out into the way that they treat their possessions. The language here says they had everything in common. And to be clear about what's going on, it wasn't that they had like a pile of communal stuff in the center of town and everyone just went and got what they needed when they needed to. We're told what's happening. We're told that here there was not a needy person among them, for as many were landowners or owners of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. We're told that there wasn't a needy person among them, and this kind of harks back to the language in Deuteronomy. If you were with us last year and we moved through the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy fifteen four, God commands His people that there is to be no needy among you. They were to make provision for the poor or those who were struggling so that the whole community together would be sharing wealth so that people didn't find themselves unusually exposed to danger or to poverty. And here they're living this out freely. As the gospel impacts their lives, everyone is looking at the community as though they're brothers and sisters and they're looking out for one another. And we're told here that those who own land or houses were selling them to meet needs. Now in their particular context... It would have been about ten percent of the population who are kind of there wouldn't be ancient language for middle class, but those who kind of, you know, owned land or had possessions like that. And a smaller even three to five percent who would be of kind of the, the aristocracy, the wealthy class. And here, this wealthy thirteen to fifteen percent are selling either lands either all that they have or part of what they have at different times to meet the needs of those who don't have enough. It's an incredible act of generosity. It's an incredible gospel impact as this community is transformed by the grace and love of Jesus. And they did it. They really lived it out. And and then in this story, if you notice, Luke zooms in on one particular character who's going to come up again and again in the book of Acts, a guy called Joseph. And this man called Joseph ends up getting a nickname because there were so many Josephs around. You kind of had to differentiate them all. And so they call him Barnabas. But unlike what happens in most guys' circles where a nickname is designed to expose and exploit your insecurities and weaknesses and and really kind of go in on them, they give him a, a... It's a beautiful community. They give him a nice nickname. And his nickname is Son of Encouragement. And it's not just because he's a hype guy who's just really posy all the time. The reason it seems to be is connected to how the gospel has transformed his life. We're told here that Joseph... He gets nicknamed Barnabas, and he'll be Barnabas from here on, has a piece of land. We're told that he's from Cyprus. So uh, Jews in previous eras had migrated to Cyprus, and his family obviously grew up there, and now he's in Jerusalem. We're not told whether the land was over there or here in Jerusalem, but he sells a piece of land, and he gives it all to the apostles. He lays it at their feet, meaning that he gives it to them to distribute as they see fit. And as they see people who are in need, they meet those needs with the money that he's provided. And so re- the reason he's such an encouraging person is he's just being crazy generous. And there's no indication here that he gives this away and then he's like, man, I wish all the other people were being as generous as me. Or why, why am I the one who has to kind of put my neck out and be really generous while everyone else is, you know, maybe not meeting the needs like I am? No, he loves Jesus so much that he's like... My stuff is theirs. Yeah, I've got enough means that I can make this happen. And he does it. And it's incredible. And at this point, everything is just good. They've been threatened by the religious leaders, by the authorities. The church instead is united. They're more driven to prayer. They're trusting God. They're trusting in his sovereign plan. They're praying for boldness. They're seeing people continually get saved. And then this happens. In Acts chapter 5, verse 1, it starts with but. Everything's going well, but a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept it back for himself, some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have lied not to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed a last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and all who heard these things. This story is a shock, and it's meant to be a shock. It's not like it wasn't a shock to ancient people, but it is to modern people. You see it in the story. Great fear falls upon everyone. And it's a shock in the story because at this point, even though the church has been threatened, they're, they're kind of they're almost good with that. But it's a shock that this has happened and happened in front of them. And your thought presumably is, well, oh God, this seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? I mean, like, they still, they still gave a gift. They were still crazy generous. Yeah, they lied about how much they were actually giving but like this seems a bit much doesn't it to strike them down dead is a bit more than rough God and the first thing to say on this is that God is God and I know that it's a shock to our modern sensibilities but God will and can do whatever he pleases that is what makes him God and because we are blessed to live in a democracy And we can look at flawed politicians and say, I wouldn't do it like that. And we can have an opinion and we can vote on it and it actually counts and it matters. It means that sometimes we feel like it's the same with God. But the universe is not a democracy and God is not a flawed human. And he's not accountable to other humans. He is just and good. In Psalm 115 it says, God is in the heavens and he does as he pleases. And just as the forces of nature, like gravity, are not subject to our opinions, neither is the God of the universe. And in some ways, this is good. The Stalins and the, His- the, the Hitlers of history will stand before a God who cannot be moved or intimidated, and they will face justice. But it's confronting in this passage, and I reckon this one particularly, if you're reading it like I am, is confronting because you look at that and you think, my gosh, I could have done something like that. That's what's so confronting. And I think this does get to the heart of the gospel, doesn't it? The truth is that there's nothing that separates Ananias and Sapphira from you or I except the sheer grace and mercy of God. And it's passages like this that shock us and remind us of that. Because over time we can get familiar with these truths about God or familiar with his grace and mercy. It reminds me of, we had a family friend who many years ago, so he'd worked as an electrician for 30 plus years. And one time I think he was working even just on his own house and just for whatever reason just hadn't done his due diligence, hadn't turned off the power and was working on a power board and received a massive shock, like it actually blew him backwards. And it wasn't life-threatening or anything like that, but I remember him reflecting that it was a a sudden reminder that though he'd dealt with this stuff all of his life, because of the safety protocols and the way that you do things, you just kind of forget that this is still powerful stuff that you're dealing with. This is still electricity. This is still high voltage material. I think that this, that's what this passage does. It's, there are passages that come along that remind us that God is good and merciful. He is not tame. We are, we are talking about a holy God. He didn't owe us forgiveness, but he gave us forgiveness through Christ. And we're not to presume upon his grace and kindness, but to be moved by it. And texts like this are a reminder. And you see the impact it has on the church, the genuine believers. There's a shockwave of fear that goes throughout them. There's this sudden reminder that, wow, God is so close and so near to us, and yet this is not a God to be trifled with. And there's a mixture, a right mixture of fear and joy. There's this joy of knowing that we are now safe and united with this God forever. That for those who trust in Jesus, judgment has swept through him. And if you are in Christ, you are never to be judged again. The mercy of God is upon you and has saved you. But we're to be reminded that this God is holy. And sin is serious because this God is holy. But with that in mind as the right starting place, there is a reason why this happens here in this passage and not elsewhere. For the start, the church is brand new. The church is only a few months old. And like like in human interactions, we are extremely protective of newborns, more so than others. Here, God is very protective of his nascent church. The church is just beginning out. And there is a seed of hypocrisy that is just starting to, to spring up. And here, he acts swiftly on it. And in a way that has reverberations throughout the church. And it matters because what was here was not like a a casual offhand mistake it was a deliberate and calculated attempt to deceive the church and when you put it parallel next to the story of Barnabas it would seem that the implication was that just as Barnabas had done an act of generosity and received a certain amount of kind of status within this Christian community at the time these two have looked on and said we kind of want to be like that Barnabas is on track to be a church leader we want to act like that but at the same time We don't have the same heart of Barnabas. Barnabas did it out of generosity, out of concern for the poor. And they want to look like they're concerned for the poor while still holding on to money. It's greed that's driving this. And it's calculated. They organize it together beforehand. They coordinate it. And not only that, they didn't have to do this. Peter says to them, No no one's requiring anyone to sell their land. People are doing it out of their free will. You weren't required to do this. This isn't a... You don't have to pay this in order to join our church community. You didn't have to do this in any way. Even after you sold the land, you could have just kept the money. There are no rules about these things. But they've done this deliberately to deceive the community and to position themselves as leaders and people of influence in this community. And here, God does deal with it, and swiftly. And look at the impact that it has on the church community as God judges this issue And purifies the church. It says Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. And none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they carried even the sick in the streets and laid them out in cots and mats, that as Peter came past, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. Bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and all were healed. Who would have thought that this is the thing that would actually grow the church? It says more than ever people were added to their number. And at the same time, we read there that some people are actually afraid to join these gatherings. They're like, what is going on? Who is this God who is working among these people and creating this united community that is so generous, and yet at the same time who is not tame or safe? There's this weird kind of interaction. But at the same time, they're growing more than ever. And now it's not just people in Jerusalem who are joining. It says people from the towns around. They're all coming. They're all hearing about it. And the church is growing. See, God does guard and judge his church. And it's good for him to do so, so that he might grow his church. And in some ways, we resonate with this. Listen, when you hear this, it does make you angry. When you hear that in the U.S. the estimates are that more church money is embezzled than given away to missions, it makes you angry. And it makes you wonder, God, why don't you almost judge more? We don't appreciate or like or respond well to hypocrisy in the church, and particularly in church leadership. And in this passage, God deals with it. But it's a reminder here, The God is a God who loves and who forgives and shows mercy, but he's also a God who judges. There is such a thing as sin, and he is a holy God. And so we do need to respond to this. And the first one, I think, would be this. If this story shocks you, it is worthwhile letting it. Because there are many believers who remain in church even their entire lives But really, their love for money exceeds their love for Christ. And when they come face to face with the Holy God, they will hear those words, Away from me, I never knew you. And Luke here is giving us a clue into our own hearts how to know ahead of time whether or not we have really understood and received the grace of God. And he says, More than anything, how you relate to wealth and money and possessions will give you the best understanding of whether or not you really have encountered the grace of God. Don't presume upon your status of God. He says, don't. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he says, Examine yourselves to see that you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize these things about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? He says, examine your own heart. You will not be justified by God by your works or church attendance or giving, as we see in this passage. But to look in your heart and say, Is Christ the thing, the one I love more than anything else? Would it be enough if I lost all my earthly possessions that I would still have Christ? Do you love like Christ to give away to the poor and for his means? Make no mistake, this passage is a warning. But if you are here and a follower of Christ, there is a reminder here to reflect on the depths of the gospel and how much Christ has loved you. That it should be the case if you've understood the gospel correctly it should lead to a deep wonder at the grace that has been poured down upon us this isn't i don't know if this is the best way to explain it but we'll we'll see how this lands if you are if you're new to australia you may not know what a bunger is and so let me just introduce you to a bit of australian vernacular it's the name it's the name for a, a small firecracker that can range from about this size to the size of a like a schoolboy's head And when I was in high school, uh, one of the guys in our year had gone down to Canberra. This was when Canberra was in its phase where no one wanted to go to Canberra, so they were trying to be like the cool uncle who would let you do all the illegal stuff in the other states. And they're like, come here, you can do whatever you want, we're really cool. And so teenagers would go down there, buy fireworks that you couldn't get anywhere else, and bring them back to Sydney. I think they've shut the gate on that since, I don't know why. But anyway, one of the guys from our year... Brought, brought a, uh, a bunger back that was like, yeah, it was. It was, it was, it was a sizable kind of thing. It was like a, like, kind of like a significant wax candle. And he had the idea, and maybe by the grace of God, I wasn't there that day, but he had the idea that he would light it and play a game of chicken. So light it, and you pass it around to everyone in the circle, and whoever's too scared lobs it. And so they went to this property behind the school that was like a deserted kind of government building, and it was like a, you know like a blown out car there and everything and he lit it and they start passing it around and eventually it gets the wick gets right down to the bottom and one of the guys panics and chucks it into the car and just at that second it lands kind of on the dashboard and it blows out every window on the car and they said w- when it went off they could see the shock wave and right after that there was laughter but not normal laughter <laughs> crazed teenage boy laughter We just avoided narrowly losing a limb or dying, kind of laughter, right? And if you've ever had any kind of a near miss, you went to step into traffic and then looked and then just avoided being hit, or anything like that, you know that feeling, the adrenaline rush that kind of runs through, just being like, I shouldn't be here today like I am, and yet I am. When you come to understand the gospel, the sense that should overwhelm us is this sense of like, I shouldn't be here, and yet I am. I shouldn't be saved and safe in the grace of God forever, and yet I am. And it leads to this deep joy and this mixture of fear with grace and mercy. And it leads us to be transformed like this community was, to real gospel generosity, to a way of seeing our stuff as not our own, to knowing that death is not the end. That there is life beyond it that transforms how we react to everything that happens in life. And that it should move us like the early church to be generous, to consider the needs that are out there in the world, the ways in which we may use the finances that we've been given to alleviate poverty and injustice even on other side of the other side of the world. That it would move us also is to share this gospel knowing that it's precious, that we love people and that God is merciful and that anyone who trusts in Jesus is saved forever from death. I mean, if we grip this, how much would it transform our lives? If we were to grasp this properly, how much joyful would we be? How much more joyful would we be? How much louder would our singing be? How much more generous would we be and joyfully so? How much more eager to share the gospel? If you grip the gospel, like the early church did in this passage here. It moves us and transforms us. And it should lead to a deep and abiding joy and a deep love to share the gospel with others. And so I'm going to pray that that's exactly the impact it would have on us, that we would see that God is holy and yet God is merciful. And then when we sing, we'd sing with the knowledge that we have been saved and saved completely and not by our own merit, but by the sheer grace of God. That when we give... And a generous, it would be with a joy knowing that God has been eternally generous toward us. That when we share the gospel, we know that it's the power to save, that there is no other name by which anyone may be saved. I'm going to pray that God would grant us this heart. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a God who is just. Do You have set a day when you will end sin and darkness. And the reason that you delay that day is that more people may turn to you and find forgiveness and healing and renewal. And Father, may we not be a people who presume upon your grace, but may we just know the depths of your grace, how much it costs you to save us, to send your Son, that he would be crucified on the cross for us, but that our forgiveness might be sure and complete and irreversible, that for anyone who trusts in Jesus, they're a new creation, that sin and judgment are behind them, and that now there is just relationship with you. And so we pray, Father, that you would continue to change us and transform us, that we'd want to be more like Jesus, that we'd want to say no to sin and yes to Christ, and that it might move us to be generous people, and that it might move us to be people who reach out to others with the gospel, knowing that it has the power to save. Father, we pray that you would do this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.